0: I brought along my son, Jonathan, who in the year 2001
1: will be the same age as I am now. Maybe he will be better adjusted to this kind of world that you're trying to portray. The big difference when he grows up, in fact, if we wanted to wait for the year 2001, is that he will have in his own house, not a computer as big as this, but at least a console to which he can talk to his friendly local computer and get all the information he needs for his everyday life, like his bank statements, theatre reservations, all the information you need in the course of living in a complex modern society. This will be in a compact form in his own house. He'll have a television screen like this here and a keyboard and he'll talk to the computer get information from it and he'll take it as much for granted as we take the telephone. I wonder though, what sort of a life would it be like in social terms? I mean our whole life is built around the computer? Do we become a computer-dependent society and computer-independent individuals? In some ways, but they'll also enrich our society because it'll make it possible for us to live anywhere we like. Any businessman, any executive could live almost anywhere on Earth and still do his business through a device like this. And this is a wonderful thing. It means we want him to be stuck in cities. We better live out in, in the country or wherever we please and still carry on complete interaction with human beings as well as with other computers.
2: Hello and welcome to this Byte High No Limit podcast about a potted history of DIY computing. A lot's known about the mainstream computers but what's not often publicised are the little DIY ones that were made as precursors to these ones before um, before computers hit the big time. So I wrote an article for a uh, publication uh, called Homebrew Heroes about 10 years ago and um, I just thought I would um, reprise the article and do an abridged version and put it to uh, tape. Um, I hope you enjoy uh, what I've um, what, what I found when I was doing the research, um, and also I'd like to thank um, Dan Faramond and uh, Chinny Hill, because uh, without their input uh, they I wouldn't have been able to uh, make this podcast, so um, thanks very much. So uh, without any further ado, let's get on to the potted history of DIY computing. In the early 1970s, electronic projects were appearing in various hobby journals for radio and electronics enthusiasts. An interesting project could help sell thousands of editions and attract advertising revenue, thus increasing the income for the publication it was printed in. One such project was the TV typewriter. It was designed by a prolific hobbyist and full-time engineer called Don Lancaster and it featured in September 1973's edition of Radio Electronics, an American hobby magazine. Readers were given the design and supporting information they needed to build a teletype. A company called Southwest Technical Products sold the printed circuit board and the main integrated circuits for under $80. However, the minor components and the not-so-minor keyboard still had to be independently sourced by the constructor. Keyboards were not easy to come by in 1973, and if you were to obtain a surplus key set from a manufacturer that built terminals, they are often expensive and require decoding to send the right type of signals to the rest of the project. Don Lancaster's prototype used 55 handmade keys and with handcrafted springs as means of a user input. Eventually, Southwest Technical Products sold a keyboard for $40, making the whole system about $120 for a kit. The project provided a good challenge to most people who took it on. There are errors that had to be amended in subsequent issues of radio electronics. In many ways this is no different to the patches and firmware updates that we experience today. When assembled the user had a teletype machine with a 16 by 32 TV output at their fingertips. It's not precisely known how many of these units and subsequent sequels were built. But the original pamphlet that supported the article in Radio Electronics was sold individually at the cost of an extra $2, and many thousands of these were sold. In 1975, two brothers, Scott and Richard Adams, modified their own Don Lancaster machine and included a powerful 16-bit IMP-16 microprocessor, among other things. This enabled the screen output to update many times faster than the original specification. The new variant could support a game that Scott had especially wrote for this computer. Scott Space Wars was a crude game where you could control the E of the Enterprise on the screen and shoot at the C Klingon ship avoiding all the meteors in the way. The game was a 1000 bytes long and was programmed directly into the system and it is claimed that it is the very first graphical game written for a home computer. In the 1970s computers that were available in Britain were expensive and very hard to come by. So this helped create a market for small self-built hobby computers. In 1977, a company called Science of Cambridge, founded by Clive Sinclair, released the Micro Computer Kit 14, or the MK14 as it was better known. It was originally designed by Cambridge undergraduate Ian Williamson, who had observed the hobby in the United States growing popularity from the Don Lancaster machine, and thought that he could make his own kit in the UK for selling for under a hundred pounds. He thought that this would be lucrative because enthusiasts in the UK were really only in the market to buy radio amplifier kits and their budgets would never stretch to an American-style home computer kit. However, Ian Williamson had accepted a lucrative opportunity to join British Leyland. This meant he would no longer have the time to pursue his kit further. So he approached his old colleague and Science of Cambridge team leader Chris Curry with the idea and Curry agreed to buy his design for £5,000 plus royalties. When the design was forwarded to the National Semiconductors Company to arrange sourcing of the integrated circuits, they redesigned the whole kit exclusively only to use their own components. This made the kits cheaper and faster to produce. As a result, Sinclair believed the kit to be so different that Science of Cambridge could produce the kit without buying Williamson's design at all. However, it was eventually agreed that Sinclair would pay £2,000 for the rights to use Williamson's design. The computer retailed around £40. This got you an 8-digit display, 20-button hex keypad, 512 bytes of ROM and 256 bytes of RAM, with room for additional expansion. The user could enhance their system by buying or building extra circuits such as a tape interface, uh, sound and video output. In probability the first enhancement to be made was swapping the membrane keyboard for a solid button assembly, as it was often commented on how the standard keypad was unresponsive at best as they entered bytes of code to program the machine. Users even managed to play games on this device. One consisted of a character moving across the display and the user timing their button presses to shoot at it. There were also music programs for those who enabled the sound and speaker circuit all of which could be saved to a cassette. MK14 user Graham Yule recalls his experiences of the kit.
0: I received an MK14 kit and tape interface as a Christmas gift from my wife. It was the first Christmas after its launch. It was fairly easy to build, and the ICs were socketed. It did not work initially, and after a visual inspection revealed nothing wrong, I returned it. After a while, it came back mended, There was no indication of what the fault was. The machine was lots of fun. The cassette storage worked. Most of the time.
2: Over 50,000 MK14 kits were sold over its life. The project lead, Chris Curry left Science of Cambridge in 1978 and co-founded Acorn Computers with an Austrian physicist, Hermann Hauser. Acorn Computer's first kit was the Acorn Microcomputer, later renamed the System 1. This was a similar machine to the MK14 Chris had worked on previously. This too had a digital readout and a 25 button keypad. This was expandable with Euro cards and they were at the time a standard among some manufacturers and this allowed the direct use of some existing circuits for expansion. The main difference however was the processor. This was based on a 6502 as opposed to the Z80. The kit was designed by Sophie Wilson and only a year or two later wrote the code for the first wrist chips that became the bedrock for all the things that we still use today. Acorn went on to produce the System 2, the System 5 and their last kit in 1980, the Acorn Atom. With its high resolution graphics and 5 graphic modes for £125, it could have beaten any other potential rival in the market but for its production problems that set it back significantly. Acorn went on and produced the Acorn BBC Micro and Electron, but these were only released in ready-built form. And whilst Acorn were locking horns with Science of Cambridge, there was a third DIY computer that was available to people in the United Kingdom. It boasted 8 kilobytes and it had a real keyboard rather than just a hex pad. So for £230 in 1979, you could get your hands on a CompuKit UK101. This machine was very, very similar to an American machine, the Ohio Scientific Superboard, but the UK101 supported the UK UHF TV signal. There were other subtle differences as well that kept various lawyers occupied in the courts for a while. The UK 101 kit was available from Comp Shop Limited in New Barnet, North London and its designs were originally published in Practical Electronics magazine authored by Dr. A. A. Burke with supporting programs with additional circuits being published in subsequent editions. The machine itself, when assembled, had a built-in basic and a cassette interface with further modification you could support a printer. Other manufacturers use their own colour video boards and memory expansion packs. A few Compukit 101s still survive today and some are still being used by their users. And you can see some examples of these still on the internet. Meanwhile, back at Science of Cambridge, now Sinclair Computers, are next models to be released and this one was the ZX80. It was a big improvement to the MK14 as it had a QWERTY keyboard with a TV output as standard. It had built-in basic and 1k of memory. It was to be built with the cheapest components possible, and it launched in 1980 for 79 95 as a kit. There was a pre-assembled machine later selling around £99. Pounds. A sign of things to come, maybe. According to our Taylors website, zxgoldenyears.net, users often had to remove the cover to prevent overheating on these machines and although there was no graphics capability on the ZX-80, it supported games. Space intruders, a type in from the book, Making the Most of Your ZX-80 by Tim Hartnell, is recorded to be the first game for it, and you could order it on tape via mail order as well. And the software scene was born. The final kit computer offered by Sinclair was the ZX-81. It was sold at £54 for a kit, but for an additional £20, you could get a ready-built working machine. The scales of economy were beginning to tip in favour of the general consumer. ZX81 and UK101 owner David Buckley shared some thoughts about owning both machines with me.
0: I found the software for the UK101 to be poor. The basic was okay, but it lacked renumber. Everybody thought the assembler was the last word. It was difficult to buy I.O. chips, and the kits were expensive and of poor quality. Documentation consisted of a circuit diagram. I'd hardly built it, and when I did, it was obsolete. However, it did allow me to finish my post-grad project, an MM3, a robot vehicle. The ZX81 was a different story. The basic was excellent. It was easy to build I.O. interfaces, and it was small, which meant it was portable. There was ample documentation. There were people, then and now, that say the ZX81 was slow and difficult to type on. Generally people who compared it to a mainframe at work, or wanted to touch-type their latest novel. Programming the ZX81 with its keyword keyboard was ten times faster than writing programs on a so-called proper computer.
2: David also feels that the spirit of her home computing has changed a lot in the last 40 years too.
0: Back then, people had a better appreciation of the technology and were willing to embrace it. There were computer furs which were packed with people wanting to assemble and program their own computer. There were lots of magazines dealing with the hardware add-ons and programming. Nowadays, embracing technology is touching the screen of a smartphone.
2: Meanwhile, in Eastern Europe in the 1980s, any countries that were in or close to the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union often had embargoes placed upon them. The regulations could be draconian, and in the worst instances it left citizens going to extraordinary risks to import home computers. There was one instance of a Commodore 64 owner who was working abroad and wanted to bring his computer back with him. He resorted to dismantling the computer into parts, then mailing them individually to his home address, and then smuggling the remaining keys in sweet wrappers to get them through customs. So, in countries like Yugoslavia... A demand for homegrown computers was evident. In nineteen eighty three, hobby magazine Rachanani Ushfakuchi, which translates as computers in your house, started to publish a design and schematics for a computer that could completely be built from scratch. Subsequent issues would include more information on sourcing parts and listing shops that would likely to have those parts. The rest was up to the determination of the builder, their luck in finding the correct components in sparsely stocked shops and their own technical ability. There was a printed circuit board available but to keep the production costs down it was one sided as opposed to double sided. This presented plenty of challenges to the builder as components needed to be squashed up closely together and many wires were needed to bridge the signals to other parts on the board. The inventor of the Galaxia, Voyar Antonich, was an ingenious man. He left the designs for the Galaxia free from patents and copyrights, believing that the information should be free for everyone to use. If you were successful in getting your Galaxia up and running, you would have a 6 kilobyte Z80 microprocessor at your disposal. Between 8,000 and 10,000 of these machines were estimated to be built and a game scene inspired by the Sinclair and Commodore markets in the West quickly evolved. The media were not slow in aiding the movement either. Radio broadcasts transmitted programs on air to owners that recorded them and loaded them directly via their tape interfaces. The programming language was spartan. To save valuable bytes in the memory, there was only very few error codes, and the codes were what, as in what are you talking about? Sorry, as in can't do that, and how, as in how do I do that? The syntax and the compiling were down to the skill of the user. The legacy of this computer is in the culture of computer users in the Balkans today. There is a website sporting a modern one-chip galaxia, with many videos demonstrating what can be done with this machine. Austrian journalist Georg Fuchs, writing for Austrian computer fanzine and 460, caught up with Galaxia creator, Voja Antonic, who shares his thoughts about the challenges of producing a computer in Yugoslavia in the early eighties, the specification of the computer and how it's regarded even to this day.
3: Was Yugoslavia affected with the West technology embargo of the Warsaw Pact countries?
4: At that time, Yugoslavia was not subject to embargo, but created one itself. All technical products, including computers, were subject to strict import restrictions. My first TRS-80 was sent me in three separate shipments from the United States. It was not easy to persuade the company to cut the ribbon cable connecting the two ports combined in the computer. How difficult was it to source those parts? There was a black market. People always managed to invent ways of finding the necessary components. Fortunately, microelectronic components are really microscopic and can easily be smuggled.
3: How did you set about writing the language for the Galaxia? Were there many
4: challenges? The software development began with the modification of Microsoft Level 1 BASIC. However, everything had to be rewritten except for floating-point arithmetic. EPROM memory was expensive at the time, and I had to optimize the software again and again to squeeze as many features as possible into four kilobytes. I have used many tricks and all possibilities that can be imagined. At this time I regularly read the byte magazine in which Bill Gates once claimed to be four kilobyte long level one basic is so highly optimized that not a single byte can be saved. After I had installed in the four kilobytes not only the routines for the video driver but also several new basic commands I would like to write a letter to him and tell him how wrong he was in his assertion. Unfortunately, I have never done that. Maybe I was just too lazy. Of course, he was not yet as well known as he is today, not as rich either. What specifications did the computer have and what components did it use? Only 17 ICs were required for the device. Some special registers for the Z88 microprocessor were used to generate the image signal. The memory was only six kilobytes in size, and the basic interpreter was, as stated, packed into a four kilobyte EPROM.
3: Was there any other hardware made for the computer?
4: My friends and Nenad Dunic, Milan Tadic, developed an extension called Galaxia Plus, which offered several new features, including high-definition graphics and a larger memory.
3: One often hears that the Galaxia triggered computer fever in Yugoslavia. Serbia today is a country that is embracing computer technology with open arms. So is it nice to be considered the father of the high-tech revolution in your country?
4: Yugoslavia in 1983 was ready for the computer fever, as most countries were. I was in the fortunate position of offering an interesting project at the right time. In 1983, most people had no idea of what a computer is and what it can do. Today, everyone gets the opportunity to build a computer. Many enthusiasts began with a Galaxia, and today are computer technicians. I still get a lot of mail from them.: The Internet community
3: still admires the Galaxia. There is even an emulator. Do you like the fact it's still remembered?:
4: Recently, there was a computer magazine in a survey on old computers. Almost all those who had a Galaxia said that it was a good experience. I'm very happy about it. I am often approached by people in the street who tell me that they built the Galaxia. For some, it was a turning point in their lives. They have fallen in love with the digital electronics.
3: Did you expect a huge success with the Galaxia?
4: A few days before the publication of Computer in Your House, Rationario Washoikuchi, we ventured an estimate of how many readers would probably build the Galaxia. I was expecting more than a hundred people. Dejan, my colleague, thought it would be twice as many. Someone said it would probably be a thousand, after which we all had to laugh. Not long after the publication of the instructions, we received more than 8,000 letters from readers who informed that they had their galaxia already running.
3: So how far did the galaxia spread in the former Yugoslavia?
4: Back then, hardly anyone knew the parochial differences between individual republics we were all one country. The computer revolution captured the whole of Yugoslavia. There were no significant regional differences here. I programmed app for computers and I remember that I got positive reactions from all over the country. The Galaxia project was covered by the media from across the country and celebrated. A computer magazine in Slovenia at the time headlined the only real indigenous microcomputer. And it still is today.
2: Computer users today owe a lot to the hobbyists of the 1970s and 1980s, Don Lancaster, Ian Williamson and Voya Antonich turned a vanity into reality for all, and whether it was a TV typewriter, an MK14 or a Galaskia, they gave hours and hours of enjoyment to thousands of users and and they've also formed an important part of the history of the evolution of the computer to the ones that we use today. Well, I hope you enjoyed that potted history of DIY computing throughout the ages. I would like to thank Georg Fuchs for the Voya Antonich interview, which you can also get on www.lowtech64.com. I'd like to also thank David Buckley from www.davidbuckley.net for his ZX81 and MicroKit 101 recollections. Thanks also to Graham Yule for his kind input and recollections. Richard Adams of www.exoticscience.com for the use of the information about the Adams Imp 16. Additional Sinclair. Information was courtesy of R. Taylor's www.zxgoldenyears.net. Supporting information on a Galactia was from Geeks Behind the Iron Curtain Kindle Edition by Christian Benich. I recommend this book, and it's only two pound forty-one for the Kindle edition now, and it's a cracking read. I would like to thank the voice talents of chinny Hill, who voiced up. Georg Fuchs's interview questions. And also, I would like to thank Georg Fuchs for voicing up Voya Antonich's responses. Graham Yule and Richard Buckley were the voice talent of Dan Farrimond. If you want to know more about the uh, MicroKit 101, you can visit John Honnibal's site www.gifford.co.uk for some additional photographs and some recollections that he has. Music for this podcast is provided by Mr. Niceness. You can find his music on youtube.com forward slash at Mr. Niceness. That's M-R-N-I-S-S-N-E-S-S. Bite High No Limit is presented by Mean Carl Lateral and it's a Bite High No Limit production. If you want to support the podcast in any way, please consider buying me a coffee. And if you want to leave feedback, you can do that via my Twitter handle, at Teletextile, or you can join the Discord and follow my podcast blog. Once again, thanks for listening. And until next time, keep it blocky.